Compass Media Networks. This is America's First News. This weekend with your host, Gordon Deal. Power of the food lobby. I'm Gordon Deal. Thanks for spending part of your weekend with us. Here's what's coming up this hour. A new report finds that weak rules and industry pressure have allowed ultra-processed food on school lunch trays. Also in Israel and Ukraine, there's a mix of high-tech and low-tech warfare that could offer a peek into how future fights are fought. Plus, the high school band that teaches and directs itself after nobody applied to fill the vacant band teacher job. And more people adopting the habits of doomsday preppers, even if on a smaller scale. So disasters have cost the U.S. over a trillion dollars between 2016 and 2022, 122 separate disasters. So they are, and they're becoming more common. Rachel Wolf at the Wall Street Journal on the new face of disaster preparedness. Well, the fusion of inexpensive high-tech weapons and low-tech brute force that Palestinian militant group Hamas used to attack Israel on October 7th echoed tactics used on the battlefields of Ukraine that could transform the future of warfare. It's a story by Dan Michaels at the Wall Street Journal, bureau chief in Brussels. Dan, what have you found? Both the conflicts in uh, Ukraine, uh, Russia's invasion there, and the fight between uh, Israel and Hamas and the Gaza Strip have featured drones. And and, um, what's interesting about it is these are a lot of them are uh, fairly low end, inexpensive, off the shelf consumer drones, not not fancy, expensive military ones. And they're being mixed with much more traditional types of warfare uh, in Ukraine with artillery, some of it going back to about World War Two. And in uh, in the fight between Hamas and Israel, um, Hamas uh, used some drones in its opening of the attack, um, but also used explosives and uh, even construction equipment to blast through the border fence that Israel had. What specifically at the outset did Ham- at the outset did Hamas use the drones for? They were specifically targeting Israeli security system, right? Yes. Cameras and such? It's going to take a while. This is what it looks like from the initial reports, that uh, Hamas, before they launched their physical assault, uh, used drones to knock out uh, fairly sophisticated guard towers that Israel has along its border. Hamas, within hours of the attack, released on social media videos uh, sh- shot by the drones, showing them dropping explosives onto these towers. And the towers have uh, antennas, detectors, things like that, as well as uh, remotely controlled machine guns. Uh, they're they're uh, a sort of a first line of defense for Israel. And uh, Hamas seems to have had good intelligence about them mm-hmm. and sent in these very small, rather slow drones to try and blind Israel so that they wouldn't see the, uh, the, the, the human wave coming across the border. We're speaking with Dan Michaels, bureau chief in Brussels for The Wall Street Journal. His piece is called In Israel and Ukraine, Mix of Drones and Brute Force Shows Warfare's Future. I mean, you're this 
big high tech military. How are you supposed to defend against like these off the shelf drones? This is a growing problem for militaries everywhere, uh, not least the United States, where uh, organizations like the Secret Service, uh, I've got to imagine, are, are spending a lot of time and money trying to figure out how to do this. Uh, the Pentagon most definitely is. It's a new challenge. Uh, drones have existed for many years, but until very recently, what the what militaries used were very sophisticated, very expensive, uh, almost like uh, pilotless airplanes. Uh, it's been the advent of small consumer drones over the past decade or decade and a half that has changed this. And these are the DJI and other other drones that hobbyists have used for photography, for drone racing, things like that. Uh, and the challenge that militaries and security organizations face is that a lot of their defensive systems are set to detect things like planes and helicopters, yeah. which are big, often come at high altitude, high speed, and they haven't yet been set uh, to detect small, slow, low-flying drones. Well, I think if I understood correctly in your story, Ukraine has been so effective at using drones that Russia is actually adopting what Ukraine did to a certain extent. Yes, exactly. That's something we've seen over recent months. We've reported about it fairly extensively in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, Russia was slow on the uptake. In some cases, it seems to have been, like initially in Ukraine, soldiers themselves getting their hands on drones, commercial drones, especially when they're using them for reconnaissance, because that's one of the first and easiest uses of a consumer drone is uh, just using a camera on it to to get a, a better view of the battlefield, uh, more complicated and sophisticated applications of even consumer drones is uh, refitting them with uh, devices to hold and then drop grenades or other explosives. Thanks, Dan. Dan Michaels, Brussels bureau chief for the Wall Street Journal. Coming up next, the power of the food lobby, even in school lunchrooms. Now your ideas don't have to wait. Now they have everything they need to come to life. Dell Technologies and Intel are creating technology that loves ideas, loves expanding your business, evolving your passions. We push what technology can do so great ideas can happen right now. Find out how to bring your ideas to life at dell.com slash welcome to now. That's dell.com slash welcome to now. Thanks for spending part of your weekend with us. For the first time, Lunchables are eligible to be served to nearly 30 million children under the rules of the National School Lunch Program after Kraft Heinz altered two of its products to qualify. Lenny Bernstein, health reporter at the Washington Post, says the weak standards that govern federally subsidized school lunches illustrate the power of the food industry in Congress. Lenny, what's happened? What has happened is that Kraft Heinz decided that there was a market in uh, school lunch and reformulated their iconic meal that I think most of your listeners know about uh, slightly to fit the school lunch guidelines. So uh, there's a little more whole wheat grain in it. 
there's more protein in it, there's a little bit more salt in it that came with the protein, and it qualified under the rules that the federal government sets for school lunch. And so this fall, uh, any school district in America that participates in the National School Lunch Program could buy Lunchables for their students. Are we serving our kids garbage, Lenny? I would not call this product garbage. It, uh, As many people probably know, for a lot of kids, school lunch is the most nutritious meal of the day, possibly of the week. Yeah. And uh, these, these Lunchables qualifies under the guidelines set by the government. What we should ask ourselves is, uh, if that is true, why do we have guidelines that allow this level of processed food? The, the federal guidelines make no mention of processed food. Well, in recent years, that has become very clear that processed food is linked to obesity. Obesity is linked to diseases like type 2 diabetes and fatty liver that our children have never had before. And we, at the current moment, do not speak to processed food in the National School Lunch Program. Wow. So is the food lobby in charge of school lunch requirements? No, I wouldn't say that. I would say that they lobby heavily, they have a tremendous lobbying budget, and they uh, certainly influence school lunch requirements. But I wouldn't say they're in charge. Uh, In 2010, you guys probably remember, um, Michelle Obama essentially remade school lunch requirements. But the way, and, and, and it was a huge debate, and there was a titanic fight in Washington over it. And what eventually they were able to pass was guidelines, not guidelines, requirements that limit certain nutrients. There is a cap on salt. There's a cap on saturated fat. There's a cap on whole wheat. I'm sorry, uh, that's wrong. There's a requirement that there be a certain amount of whole wheat, certain amount of protein, certain amount of calcium. Well, we all know from making our own meals that food doesn't work that way. It doesn't fit neatly into categories. Mm -hmm. And so what people who want to see something different say is you've got to address the entire meal, right? What does that entire meal look like when the kid sits down to eat it? Nobody thought Lunchables, nobody intended in 2010 for Lunchables to be one of those meals. Wow. We're speaking with Lenny Bernstein, health and medicine reporter at the Washington Post. They've got a good story called How Lunchables Ended Up on School Lunch Trays. Uh, Take it outside the borders of the U.S. What do other countries do? Well, I found this one of the most remarkable things that I learned during the course of this uh, reporting for this story. Um, France, uh, which I looked into uh, in depth, which didn't make didn't make the story, always has put a premium on healthy lunch. Uh, it is a point of pride in you know neighborhoods in Paris uh, where I talked to, to some people to the point that if you're a politician there, uh, some local politicians, that school lunch better be damn good uh, or you're in trouble. Um, there's just a whole tradition in, in France of healthy meals and meals as education. They want kids to understand healthful eating. They want kids to understand nutrition. There's a whole different philosophy about it. It's not just fuel to get the kid to three o'clock. 
in Chile, they were a lot like us. They were facing an obesity crisis. And in 2016, uh, a doctor who was also a legislator said, enough is enough. And he pushed through, with the help of many other people, he pushed through uh, a law that requires these big black octagons on the front of products that are contain things that are not healthy for you. Mm. So you go through the grocery store, you can buy those things for your kids, but there are these big black signs on them that wow. say, this is high in fat, this is high in, in salt. And they also banned a lot of things that were bad from schools. Another thing, Gordon, if I might belabor this point, a lot of kids in these other countries, you know what they drink at lunch? Water. They don't fight over, you know, 1% milk versus 2% milk, uh, you know, Gatorade light versus, you know, Diet Coke. They give the kids water. And that is a really good idea from where I'm sitting. Thanks, Lenny. Lenny Bernstein, health reporter at The Washington Post. Coming up next, the trending approach to addressing homelessness. Hey there, Gordon Deal here, and everyone knows the best part of fall is the food. I found a new way to embrace the season. Hello Fresh Markets, limited time fall flavors. Let me tell you about their apple cider cake with caramel sauce. Man, so good. Are you looking for the perfect game night treat? Write this one down, barbecue pulled pork nachos. Speaking of which, I recently had the kids home from school, and HelloFresh not only saved me time, but made me look like a pro chef. Using farm-fresh ingredients... You're going to get the flavors of fall in every bite. And trust me, you don't want to miss out on the mini pumpkin cheesecake. It's perfect for a me-time treat. Want to give it a shot? Go to HelloFresh.com slash 50Gordon and use code 50Gordon for 50% off plus free shipping. That's right, 50% off plus free shipping at HelloFresh.com slash 50Gordon with code 50Gordon. HelloFresh.com slash 50Gordon with code 50 Gordon. Hey, glad you could be with us. Across much of the western U.S., more cities are erecting tiny home villages for the homeless to quickly get people indoors and connect them to basic resources like electricity. Here's this weekend's Jennifer Kashenka. A tiny home is a small structure. They're between maybe 70 square feet at the smallest to maybe up to 200 square feet. And they can be produced very quickly, and they look like maybe what you see in some people's backyards, like a backyard shed. There's room for one or two beds, and there's some shelving in there and electrical outlets. And these tiny homes are more secure shelter and give people a roof over their head as opposed to a tent or another form of structure that someone who's unhoused might erect for themselves. Claire, talk about some of the cities where they are going up. Yeah, so there's news out of California. Last week, Governor Gavin Newsom announced that 300 tiny homes are going to be given to Sacramento, and his administration is giving a total of 1,200 tiny homes to four cities in California including Sacramento, San Jose, Los Angeles, and San Diego. And there have been tiny homes in California, in L.A., for a couple of years now. Denver also broke ground this month on a new tiny home community that's going to have 120 structures. And in Austin, Texas, 
there is a tiny home community called Community First Village that first opened in 2015. We're speaking with Claire Thornton of USA Today. Claire, why is the homeless problem so acute in California? California has by far some of the highest housing costs in the country. If you look at like the top 10 most expensive cities or metropolitan areas or counties to live in, eight or nine of them are about are in California. People who work minimum wage jobs or have very low incomes have no way to access housing on the, the commercial housing market. People who work minimum wage jobs in California or have very low incomes simply do not have enough money or resources to access what we think of as the typical housing market that's defined by supply and demand, and costs are set based on that. The homeless crisis in California is is so bad because evictions and rent increases are pushing more people into homelessness every day. So even as government officials are trying their best to get people into shelter and get people housed every day, more Americans are falling into homelessness for the first time. How are cities getting people to go into the tiny houses? Are they forcing them in? Force is an interesting word. In cities throughout the West, L.A., Portland, Denver, government officials and outreach workers are working to clean up homeless encampments where people are living in tents and vehicles. And there's a lot of tension around that because these homeless encampments, the people who live there, it is their home. It is their community. They don't have anywhere else to go. The homeless shelters in these cities are full and have very long wait lists. So people have nowhere else to go. And there's a lot of tension in communities because there's pressure on government officials to clean up the homeless encampments, and they are coaxing and trying to get people into tiny homes as well as temporary hotel programs. And usually what that looks like is outreach workers go to a homeless encampment and they tell people there, you have two weeks to decide whether you want to come with us and we can place you in a tiny home or you'll have to leave this site. So there is a bit of coercion involved from based on what homeless advocates have told me. People are between a rock and a hard place because at the end of the day, people everywhere are being pushed out of places where they've lived and shuffled around or they can go into a tiny home village and in in these tiny home villages, they'll have to follow rules, and there's curfews, and there's different rules in place that they would have to follow. That's this weekend's Jennifer Koshenka with reporter Claire Thornton at USA Today. 30 minutes now after the hour on This Weekend. Aging is a journey that can gather some unwanted passengers, namely those senescent or zombie cells. 
Hi, it's Gordon Deal. And I used to feel that sluggish middle-aged mood, those aches after workouts. I could practically feel those old cells just taking up space, bogging me down. Then I found Qualia Senolytic. Think of it as giving your body a little spring cleaning, pruning away the worn-out cells, and letting the lively ones shine. And you only take it two days a month. Crafted with vegan, gluten-free, non-GMO ingredients. Plus, with a 100-day money-back guarantee, you've got a risk-free journey to rejuvenation. Resist aging at the cellular level. Try Qualia Senolytic. Go to neurohacker.com slash Gordon for up to $100 off and use code Gordon at checkout for an additional 15% off. That's neurohacker.com slash Gordon for an extra 15% off. Thanks to Neurohacker for sponsoring today's show. Neurohacker.com slash Gordon. Thanks for spending part of your weekend here. I'm Gordon Deal. Coming up this half hour, the rising cost of vehicle ownership plus unavoidable AI. Also, the new face of preppers and the high school band that goes it alone. We'll have that story in about 20 minutes. Well, the cost of owning a vehicle continues to rise. No surprise, right? Now look at the reasons why and how you can fight back from Elizabeth Renter, data analyst at NerdWallet. Elizabeth, what have you found? You know, car owners are definitely feeling increased costs, and that's um, gas has kind of been up and down and all over the place over the past few years, uh, but auto insurance uh, is driving a lot of the increase in costs. Um, and there's a few reasons for that. During COVID, we saw accident rates fall because people were staying home. As people began hitting the roads again, accident rates picked back up as, as they went sort of towards the normal. And, you know, as accident accident rates increase, insurance companies adjust for that. Their risks are up, they're gonna charge us more. Another reason for it is the reinsurance market. And reinsurance can kind of be thought of as insurance for insurance companies. So insurance companies are paying more for reinsurance and they're passing that along to us as well. Got it. Uh, you, you made a good point about driving um, during COVID. Uh, and then when we came back, we were a little bit crazy, weren't we? I mean, slightly off the beaten path here, but I, I think speeding was like way up. Like we, we were so happy to be flying down the highway and like we <laughs> so so thrilled to be behind the wheel again. Yeah. Maybe <laughs> well, and also uh, to your point, traffic wasn't as bad for the for the people that either were on the road the entire time. You know, they yeah, didn't right. they weren't able to work from home or their business was completely shut down. Um, you know, some people have been on the road, whether they were in the medical profession or in the service industry or otherwise needed to get to work. And I think that's an important point to drive home is even though we've seen the share of people that work from home increase during the pandemic, it has fallen slightly, um, but it's still higher than it was pre-pandemic. The overwhelming majority of workers drive or carpool to work. So in 2022, it was 77% of workers. Um, and, you know, most people have to drive to work and they're spending money to get there. Yeah. We're speaking with Elizabeth Renter, data analyst at NerdWallet. They're out with their first ever vehicle ownership cost index. You know what stood out to me? You said that uh, ownership costs were up 8% just in August alone. That's right. And, and you know, since we printed that story, we've got the September data. Um, prices rose 11% in September uh, over the year. So, yeah, you can think of this yearly. It's sort of like an inflation. It is an inflation rate. So when we say inflation is growing at 3.7%, well, the comparable ownership inflation is growing at 11%. Goodness. All right. So help us out as consumers here. We're beaten. We're, we're being uh, kind of, I don't know, beaten over the head at every angle with these costs. What can we do? 
Yeah, I would say the first thing to do is make a habit of shopping for car insurance. You know, I think a lot of us sort of set it and forget it, but that policy renews every single year. And so take a few minutes to get a couple quotes, call your insurer and see if you're missing out on any discounts. We found last spring that just one quarter of Americans make a habit of shopping for car insurance. So regularly evaluating your coverage and make sure you're not overpaying, that can make a big difference. Um, Another thing that can make a big difference, and it might not seem this way but gas rewards programs you know if you see the ads for them it's like oh yeah i can earn points and get a nickel (laughs) but when you're filling up a gas tank a nickel for each gallon you know that really does add up and specifically you know if it's a grocery store gas rewards program you're in there spending money anyways it's a really low effort way to sort of start to eat away at those gas costs thanks elizabeth elizabeth renter data analyst at nerd wallet it's been said that generative artificial intelligence is unavoidable if you want to be your most productive self. But what exactly does that mean? Here's tech analyst Rob Enderly from the Enderly Group. Rob, explain. Well, it's already unavoidable. It's um, it's it's already migrated to a certain extent into the into our search methodologies. With Bing being the first to bring it out, um, and then eventually Google has started to implement it as well. And it's turned up in, into a turning up in a number of tools from Windows and Office. Um, most of us uh, that are in the business have started to use it in those two in beta, uh, but it's due uh, in its final form in a few weeks. And then um, um, Apple has started to implement it as well as a um, as a backend in, into their services. So that so it's um, if it's not unavoidable now, it it probably will be by the end of the year. All right. Search and summary is that mostly say how it's being used for people at work? Yeah. Search search and summary about the. Uh, um, it really helps with internal or external information. It provides a very fast way to get uh, summaries of articles, uh, as opposed to the entire article. And they're much more complete summaries. And the and the uh, and as the AI learns you, the summaries will adjust to your interests. And so, uh, but yeah, the, it's most people I think are using it for search and summary. But, but an increasing number are using it to, you know, write papers from notes, to plan trips, um, to lower the cost of planned trips. Um, uh, so that it's it's uh, it, it's getting broader use as it advances. It's being used uh, also to uh, to automate uh, the the digital twin creation of of, um, of items for factory planning and um, and metaverse uh, implementation. So it's 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 moving very fast. We're speaking with Rob Enderly. He's the founder and principal analyst at the Enderly Group, and we're talking about how generative AI is unavoidable. Uh, what happens if you don't adapt, Rob? Well, it, it, it's like if you didn't learn how to use a computer 20 years ago, uh, the, the, uh, you, you wouldn't be very competitive. And in fact, people were asking if you had word processor experience back in the 80s. Uh, so, the, so, the, uh, uh, so, yeah, if, if you can't or don't know how to use these tools, um, don't expect to, to do well in, in, in a hiring process and don't expect to do well in terms of even retaining your job. Uh, it, it, when you learn how to use these tools, people, uh, companies have already reported it, it, it results in 30 to 80 percent uh, productivity gain. And so you're competing against other people and if they're outperforming you by 30 to 80 percent, chances are you're going to be on the, on the layout, layoff list or replacement list. Uh, because you won't be performant, and so the so this is a tool you you have to learn. And the sooner you begin learning it, the better off you're going to be. Because the uh, the much like search, 
required you to understand Brulean logic to do it well. Working with an, I, an AI requires you to be patient. It requires you to really think through your request because it's, it's an effort uh, accelerator. And so if, if you're not good at summarizing something, a, a request to the AI, uh, then it'll take many iterations for you to get the end result that you want. The better you are at summarization or laying out what it is you want, the better the AI will perform. Think of it like having a servant that doesn't really right now know, know anything about you. Uh, you kind of have to be much more precise about your explanations, otherwise it will do things you don't want done or it will not perform the job that you, that you hoped it would perform. Yeah. So it does require a skill set. It doesn't have a long learning curve, though I expect for some people that can't really organize their thoughts, uh, that learning curve will be longer than others that can you know, quickly summarize, uh, write an email in one line and, make it com- and have it be complete. Those are the kinds of skills you need with uh, with AI. What about concerns here that uh, it can at times make stuff up? Well, that's that's true of humans as well, unfortunately. Depends how the AI has been trained. Um, and there are people that have been actively going in and trying to break these things and expect we'll have more of that going on. Uh, but the firms that supply them are, are learning how to better curate the training sets which go into how the AIs perform and clean out some of those anomalies. And I expect eventually we'll have an AI that just goes through and cleans stuff up and make them make them more accurate. Thanks, Rob. Rob Enderly, founder and principal analyst at the Enderly Group. Coming up next, the new face of disaster preppers. Now your ideas don't have to wait. Now they have everything they need to come to life. Dell Technologies and Intel are creating technology that loves ideas loves expanding your business, evolving your passions. We push what technology can do so great ideas can happen right now. Find out how to bring your ideas to life at dell.com slash welcome to now. That's dell.com slash welcome to now. Thanks for spending time here. A renewed interest in self-reliance is driving city dwellers and suburbanites to stock their homes and cars for emergencies. Rachel Wolf, reporter at the Wall Street Journal, says disaster prep once the province of fringe groups and so-called preppers convinced doomsday was at hand has a new face. Rachel, explain. So disasters have cost the U.S. over a trillion dollars between 2016 and 2022, 122 separate disasters. So they are and they're becoming more common. All right. So is this what we're typically prepping for? these days or is it like the doomsday scenario it's much more the everyday your everyday flood fire or pandemic you know people saw the shock of empty grocery store shelves and they were like you know what i don't want to have to go to six different stores to find Mm. toilet paper in the future i want to have enough so that i can survive a couple of weeks days uh, it's not years that people are preparing for. Um, it's wanting to be a little bit more self-reliant. And don't worry, by the way, as you point out in your story, there are boutique preparedness packs available. They are apparently surging in popularity, these companies report, and they're you know, proliferation. There are so many of them these days and they're like really cute. They're, you know, the like minimalistic, logos and bright colors and um the idea is that people don't want to have to think about it any more than they have to they want 
you know, somebody else to do the work for them and gather everything up that they would need. Some people also obviously are putting them together themselves. But yeah, these kits apparently have been selling really well. Wow. Who, who makes them and what's and what's in them? Yeah, there's a company called Judy. There's one called Preppy. They both include things like hand crank radios, emergency rations, flashlights, silver heat blankets, mm. gloves, things that are, you know, maybe fairly obvious, but people, you know, just like knowing that they have it and they don't need to figure out how to assemble it, where to get everything themselves. All right. We're speaking with Rachel Wolf, reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Her story is called Who Counts as a Disaster Prepper These Days? Lots of us. You referenced in your story too changing demographics. What about that? Yeah. So a lot of preparedness experts I spoke to said that the stereotypical prepper used to be a white man who maybe lived in a more rural area and leaned a little more conservative. Now a prepper is just as likely to live in New York City, work a white collar job um, and be a vegan. So there really is no stereotypical person who's prepping these days. The idea is that it's everybody. It's a representative mix of people from all ages and demographics. Um, whereas before, it was a little bit of a more niche community. Yeah. Are you one? Are you a new style prepper? To some extent. I live in New Orleans, so having some supplies on hand uh, is always a good idea. <laughs> um, yeah. And, uh, you know, I keep extra water. We had a bit of a scare with the potential uh, salt water in our water. I remember, yeah. Um, but yeah, it seems like we're going to be okay. But yeah, it's always it's always something. It's not a hurricane. It's a saltwater wedge you know, these th days. Thanks, Rachel. Rachel Wolf, reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Coming up next, the do-it-yourself high school band in West Virginia. Well, we'll finish with this. On the first day of school, the principal of Pocahontas County High School in West Virginia dropped by the band classroom. He told the 38 students that the school had been unable to find a band teacher at the previous one left over the summer. Nobody applied. The Washington Post says, however, since money was still budgeted for the music department, if the teens wanted to keep the Warriors band going and teach themselves, the school would support them and they'd get full credit for the class. Most opted for a different class during fifth period, but 10 students took him up on the offer. Although the Warriors don't have enough band members to do marching field shows, they have been keeping school spirit flowing in the stands. After word spread about the band's efforts to teach themselves, several school alumni volunteered to join the students in the stands on homecoming day and play their old instruments. Pocahontas County High School, by the way, was so rural that the bus ride is 90 minutes long for some students. That'll do it for this hour. Thanks for listening to This Weekend. I'm Gordon Deal.